Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. We are back to finish our coverage of The Way Station by Stephen King, which is chapter two of The Gunslinger, which is the first novel of seven in the Dark Tower series. I, I love setting that up every time. It's just kind of a ridiculous <laughs> way to say that all. But at any rate, what really matters is that this is going to be the discussion episode. And uh, there's a lot to discuss here. We started to get in a little bit of a fight last episode, actually. And I think we're going we're gonna to have that out this time. Uh, but also, let me give you all a final reminder that we are voting now to decide what our next Patreon bonus series is going to be. There are only a few days left to vote. So if you aren't already with us on Patreon at the second tier, check that out now at patreon.com slash Media. Please join us on Patreon. Check us out there so that you can vote for what you want to hear us cover. It means a lot to us to get the financial support, but we also really love the participation. So... The headline here is join us on Patreon so you can vote for what you want to hear covered. If you can't do that, we totally understand. But please consider then reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. That's another great way you can help us out. And it doesn't cost you anything but a little time. So yeah, that's uh, those are, the I guess, the two things we want to lead off with today before <laughs> we get right into the discussion. I do have a disclaimer before we get started, which is that uh, the Internet Archive is down. They got into some legal trouble with the Library of Congress, I think. So I couldn't actually find the original copy of the magazine publication that I used um, to compare the magazine edition, the original publication to the book. And we know that other changes have been made since the edition that we're reading. I actually have the like, uh, you know, mass market paperback edition and then the one we got for the show. And they're they're the same. But I will say this. If we're talking about differences between the edition we have in the magazine edition and future editions of the Waystation, it seems to be the main thing that was changed was some lines in the opening nursery rhyme, but I couldn't find what those changes were. So Glenn, I'm sure you're disappointed, but uh, that's the truth. That's the whole, that's the whole reality of the situation. <laughs> I, I am disappointed in that, but at the same time, also finding now that I, like Roland, have a quest and uh, <laughs> one that will be less dangerous and involve perhaps, uh, uh, you know, less, uh, less dehydration, though maybe not no dehydration, but, but less dehydration <laughs> as I slam uh, cups of coffee and try to track this down. Actually, I have for a while wanted to get sort of physical copies of, uh, of the magazines and uh, that might just be what I do now, which would be cool to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a real shame. And, and the worst part of it is uh, going on the internet and finding information that things have been changed, but nobody's logged the changes anywhere. So you get the, I don't know, the Dark Tower Wiki or the Wikipedia article on the Waystation or whatever that says, yeah, uh, th these changes were made. And then they don't tell you what they are. That would have helped us out a lot. But this is the world we live in now. Maybe a little nursery rhyme change. Um, uh, you know, I imagine if I were going back and editing this after I did Wizard in Glass, before publishing Wolves of the Kala, uh, I might have bulked up the, the backstory of the world a little bit. But I don't think any significant changes have, have been made. 
Right. And, and some of that is a conversation that we're going to have 35, 40 years from now when we've moved this series over to ATOS and have done uh, <laughs> books two through seven as uh, right. you know three hour single episodes and then have, I don't know, 10 wrap up episodes on the whole thing, one of which will be just going back and comparing different versions of the gunslinger to each other, which actually <laughs> that's that's totally my jam. <laughs> yeah, somebody's got to do that work. I guess. That's why we have archivists and historians, you know, it's maybe not the most profitable work, but somebody he's got to do it. Well, at that point, you know, 35 years in the future, I mean, Stephen King will be classic literature and people will be doing PhD dissertations on him. And right. uh, that kind of uh, tracking of manuscript changes is actually like, at least from my perspective as a medievalist, that's serious business work that someone has to do. Yeah. And uh, hopefully the internet archive will sort out their legal troubles by then. But I'm not, I'm not convinced it's going to happen. There's some real... There's some real weight behind the other side of the argument, which is a uh, uh, kind of tragedy. But um, I don't know. For a few years, we had the Internet Archive, and that was that was a delight. Right. For a few years, we had both the good and bad part of the cyberpunk dystopia. And well, now it's just the bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we should talk about this yeah. story now instead of lamenting our, our misspent <laughs> youth of the late 90s and early 2000s. So. I really want to start this discussion by talking about world building to get us into the broader stuff that's going on. Uh, we're also going to talk ethics and morality, and we're also going to talk professionalism. Those are my three big topics here. But King makes some really big moves in this novella that takes us in some surprising directions, especially as we learn more about the world that the gunslinger inhabits. Basically, what King is doing here is expanding the world in order to create a lot of new directions and new possibilities for storytelling in the future. I'm not sure if he had all these novellas written before he got them published. So, you know, in a very general sense, King is just expanding his potential as a writer in this second story which is what second stories are really for. But I want to ask you, Glenn, just broadly speaking, what are some of the moves that you saw King make really primarily to expand the world of Roland? Well, on the topic of, of lamentation, I, something I'd been thinking about lately, uh, and actually because of uh, an episode that, that Brent and I did, is the way that we tell character origin stories now versus the the way that or at least a way that it was common to do this in in my own misspent youth as you as you described it which is to not think about that really so much when you're inventing a character but just to say look we're in a story the story requires this this is our hero he's doing these things and that's it and then when you get the sequel, or maybe it's, you know, the second season of a TV show, but, you know, sequel, maybe if it's a movie, maybe it's a book, that's when you start to think, wait, maybe we should do some backstory, some origin story on this character, and that the origin story itself is actually then kind of a bit of retconning, where uh, you need to take things that have appeared, you know, in the story you've already told and try to make them make sense together as a kind of origin story. There are a lot of really great examples of this, but probably the well, maybe not best, but the, the most famous one and one that is germane to things we have talked about on this show b before is the weird prequel prologue opening to the third Indiana Jones film, where we have to learn where Indy got all his iconic stuff, including his scar that's actually just Harrison Ford's scar, right? Um, <laughs> that sort of thing, right? And that's kind of the move that King is making here, where even though this is you know being published altogether here in the package that we're reading it as this novel, it really feels like 
King just started writing the story of Roland. And in fact, I think we know that that's the genesis of the very first line of this story, that King just kind of started writing and was really making it up as he went. Here now he has sat himself down to think a little bit more about what's actually happening about the character's origin story, but we're getting it second. We're getting it as a kind of flashback after we've already had an adventure with this character. It's just so different from the way that we get stories now where we're living in a world where the best season of a TV show is always the first season. It's never seasons, you know, two through four, you know, or something like that. And, uh, it's refreshing to me, I think, to revisit a story that's set up this way. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why that is 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 like Star Wars, right? That's that's a big part of the reason. But then also Disney uh, buying every mega, <laughs> every major franchise that exists, because th- what they realize what people want to see, and this happened with uh, Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie in particular, is that hero's journey. And we're kind of, as a culture, addicted to that hero's journey that gets our hero from powerless to powerful. And we're less interested in like what the hero does after that. And it's kind of a shame because that's a, that's a coming-of-age story. And it kind of traps us as adults. Glenn, we're old, and so we get to lament right. and stuff. But <laughs> you know, it traps us as adults in a world of stories that are really just for children, just for teenagers. And so it traps then also a lot of adults, I think, with the sense of missing out, of having lost that, of that that possibility of becoming powerful in that way is, is lost to them. And uh, I won't go into any psychological uh, issues I have with that or what's going on with our culture and storytelling. I don't know. That's, that's the 700 page the, the <laughs> academic work that I will publish, uh, not publish, but just have sit on my computer as a file for the next 50 years. But um, yeah, it's, it's a real tragedy. And I also, I love this uh, thing that you're talking about where we just have our heroes doing stuff because they've already accepted the mantle of responsibility instead of constantly having to retell them losing and regaining their power. Though I will say King does that in the second book of the series. And that leads to kind of a, uh, an expansion of a move that he makes in this section of the story. In my mind, the King kind of makes these three major moves to expand the world. Uh, he introduces a past sort of pseudo authorian world that the gunslinger came from. He introduces demons and he introduces portal fantasy to his world. Uh, do you see anything, any other types of moves that, that King really makes here to, to give us a bigger sense of uh, the scopes of stories that he can tell? Not so much maybe uh, types of stories, but certainly King is also expanding this, not just in, in, in terms of genre and storytelling, but he is building this world out in place as well. And this you know, weird Western Hogwarts place that he invents here in the flashback <laughs> is about as you know far as you can get from the the weird Western setting itself. So, you know, that definitely is a place where he can tell different types of stories, and and certainly the flashback story here and the the present story are, although there's real thematic resonances, obviously they are very very different settings, and I think very very different moods as well. And you know, in thinking about you know. Disney buying up just every intellectual property ever. And, you know, by the way, if you're writing checks, you can have some of mine as well. <laughs> but uh, it's something that occurred to me while reading this, just thinking about what types of stories King can tell. Uh, a spinoff from this that I don't think anyone has done that would make a pretty great TV show would actually just be 
to have a three season story about this school. You don't even have to have Roland there, you know, just about other kids. Yeah, that would be awesome, uh, though, though, probably pretty difficult to watch. But given our taste uh, culturally for brutality <laughs> on television, I don't know, maybe it's the perfect thing for AMC to do or something like that. So let's talk about some of these uh, world expansion things. I mean, we already have the world moving on. We know that from the last one. We get a little more technology in this section as well, like nuclear power was a thing, uh, but power is mostly dead otherwise. But let's take those three big ones that I brought up and kind of look at them one by one and see what King is doing maybe by making these moves in his story. Let's talk about the demon first, because that kind of gets the least amount of text in the story itself. Uh, what was your sense of what's happening with the introduction of demons like this, of these uh, spirits inhabiting bones or, or whatever? This is all we know about demons in this story. Right. We we had a demon in, in chapter one, the, the, the gunslinger, but that was a, a demon that was actually possessing uh, a, a real person. And to be honest, even at that point, I wasn't entirely clear what was going on with demons. There was a real uh, church revival sense to, to that scene with Roland as a kind of preacher doing a, a laying on of hands. But that's all presented very differently here. This is not a demon that is possessing someone who needs to be exercised. This is demon almost more like ghost Right, that there's some kind of ghost here that has some wisdom, the, the ghost uh, that is inhabiting this corpse, or at least a, you know a skeleton, or, or well, maybe not even a full skeleton, but a skull somehow buried, you know, on the side of the the foundation of this way station here, that has some kind of supernatural knowledge that can be conveyed to. Roland here and, you know, can use the voice of a, a, a person that Roland knows, a dead person that Roland knows. So those are some of the things that we see about how this works. But it, it does not jive with what we saw, I think, a, a, you know, demon doing in chapter one. Uh, but it's, so it's interesting to me that King even just, you know, uses that same that same word here. Yeah. Do you think it suggests like a, a larger afterlife or that this is the afterlife like i think we've toyed with those ideas in the in the past that this is a kind of afterlife and there's even sen senses of that in this story as well like jake dies and this is where he goes and so maybe there's nowhere else for these souls to move on to but i'm not sure what makes them a demon you know on some level this this bit of i don't know necromantic magic you might call it reminds me of uh the uh, a portion of the hebrew bible with the famous witch of Endor, who's like a medium who calls up the prophet Samuel, uh, who Saul consults, even though he knows he shouldn't, indicating this whole like other sense of the world, uh, of of the afterlife, of spirits and things like that, that up to that point in, in the Bible just weren't really there. The, the the witch of Endor business is well. It feels like Book Eleven of the Odyssey. So it's really you know coming out of the the actual context of the actual world that Paul and other early Christians and Christ Himself are inhabiting. It's a world that's actually kind of hidden in the New Testament in a in a lot of ways. But yeah, I think it's confusing here. And and for thinking about are these demons you know something that exists on another plane and then they're able to inhabit humans or you know even human remains in some way maybe that's true i mean that does seem to be what's happening if that's the case then 
I don't know that this where we are is actually a kind of afterlife, or maybe it is, but it's not actually hell. Maybe this is, uh, you know, purgatory or, or limbo of some sort, some kind of in between state. Because I think we can definitively say that it is not a, a heaven, it's not a, a paradise. But you know, I think if it were actually hell, right? Demons wouldn't need to do this because, you know, even just if we're thinking, you know, not so much about the the burgeoning uh, use of hell in urban fantasy from the the 1980s onward, you know, sort of post-dating this bit of writing from King. But even if we're thinking all we've got really is Dante and Milton, even still at that point, that, that, we have the idea that hell is the place where demons exist corporally and, you know, as fallen angels or something else, they exist corporally. And that's not something we're getting here. Yeah, it's certainly a strange move. And demons do become pretty important in the whole mythos of the Dark Tower. And so it's very confusing to me. And But if we're just looking at this story, I think this demon business is made even more complicated by the introduction of uh, portal fantasy as an element of these stories. And as I said, this plays a big role in the whole story cycle of the Dark Tower. You know, there are ways of moving people between some version of New York and our world, you know, and and like two whole books are dedicated to this idea in various ways in the the later series and things get even more wonky from there. But Jake dies and comes to this world you know, demons are dead or undead. They, do you think there's a, do you get the sense because there's this weird connection between death and breaking through into the gunslinger's world, uh, that these demons might be poking through from, uh, like a, an oracular place of, of a sort that there's another world that knows this story. And so is breaking through in this weird way to, to communicate with Roland in this moment. Well, they certainly seem to have knowledge, right? Knowledge that Roland doesn't have. We have thus far not been able to verify any of the knowledge that they claim to have, right? They're saying things. We can't verify if that's true or not. If it turns out to be true, then uh, it is the case that they have access to knowledge in, in some way through some means that Roland simply doesn't have. And that might be something really metaphysical, like you're suggesting, Brandon, that they exist on some plane uh, or, you know, they exist in the future somehow, maybe, and they're reporting from the from the future. They're, they're reporting to the past about the future in this kind of oracular way. That's, uh, I don't know, some Star Trek temporal Cold War stuff that <laughs> I don't actually think is going on. But, you know, it could be something like that. Could be something where the demons themselves actually just are able to check in on multiple places in this world at once, right? So that uh, wherever these demons are residing, they're able to be watching Roland and also watching uh, the man in black all at the same time. And so they can report to Roland on what the man in black is up to, you know, and say things like, you know, you don't want to do that. That's, yeah, that's going to lead to something bad, not because they've seen the future, but because they're able to see more of the present or something like that. Yeah, that could definitely be the case. It's interesting. The demons respond really only to the high speech, like they can be commanded with it. And also, the term demon, of course, has a very like negative context here, but they seem to be rooting for the gunslinger in some sense <laughs> or warning him. And so we don't know if they, as in the last chapter, serve the man in black, if he's the king of demons in some sense, this kind of ultimate evil, or if they're on Roland's side, which would make Roland's quest kind of an, an evil quest. What's your sense of that? 
Well, and the man in black is also presented as a, a priest. That's happened multiple times. It happened in the first chapter. It's happened in this chapter. Like Jake thinks of him as a as a priest. So King is playing with you know maybe in, inverting some of our our presuppositions about the the virtue of of a priest and the you know the vices of 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 demons here. And I think you know demon does seem to be something more just like. Uh, spirit, maybe tormented spirit, something like that. So, you know, if we're trying to wonder, you know, why are these demons rooting for the gunslinger? I might think that they're actually trapped wherever they are, uh, you know, in some kind of uh, prison or they're you know, being tormented in some way that the man in black is responsible for or that, uh, Roland is going to be able to get some kind of information from the man in black that at least incidentally could help the demons out or something like that. You know, I, I suspect it just feels like they've got some agenda of their own, that they're not just, you know, bystanders, they're not just audience surrogates rooting for the protagonist, but that they're actually their own class here in this world, their own type of group in this world with their own agenda, their own interests and motivations. Well, we'll just have to to wait to find out. I think we get more about them in, in the book I least enjoyed in the series, which was book six. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, there's a lot more demons to come in this series and <laughs> more monsters and things like that. I think we can kind of put demons and, and maybe even portal fantasy to bed. I, I don't know what we can really say about the portal fantasy aspect of this other than King introduces it here and makes great use of it throughout the rest of the series. Right. At this point, all we know is that somehow, at least one time, there's been a one directional journey from New York of the you know 1960s, I guess, to whatever world this is that Roland is inhabiting. We don't really know even what you know the spatial and temporal relationships are between those two worlds. So what type of travel are we even talking about? It could be time travel, it could be spatial travel or you know I guess dimensional travel is really what I mean by this because I I definitely don't think this story is taking place on just some undiscovered part of actual real planet Earth circa 1965 <laughs> right. or whatever. I definitely don't think that. But so is this temporal travel, like time travel or is this uh um you know dimensional or planar travel? That's unclear, but also unclear is could Roland go the other way? How frequently can this happen? We just we just don't know that, at least not at this point. Yeah, not yet. And, and yeah, this is definitely not like astronauts landing on Mars only to discover it's Sedona or something like that. <laughs> that's, that's not taking place here. <laughs> well, there's one other major world building move that King makes here that I want to talk about, and it's the Ar Arthurian world. And uh, we've talked about that a little bit in our uh, second recap episode, but I, I really want to hone in on what you think King is gaining by explicitly referencing Arthur's stories in this uh, story, The Way Station, but then specifically how he's making Roland to be the knight errant, the last one of his kind. One thing I would really like to do, though we will not do until we're actually wrapping up this book, because I, I don't want it to influence the way that I'm reading the next chapters, but I'm certain that King has uh, talked about, if not actually written about, the genesis of this story in more detail. And, and part of the reason that I'm certain of that is because I feel like I have uh, read some of that material before, uh, literally 20 years ago, when I was reading this for the first time, and I've su sufficiently forgotten enough of it that it's not really all 
that influence much. It's it's not all that much influencing the way I'm reading this, but I would love to see what the whole syllabus for that college English class was because it, this really feels like it's uh, fan fiction for whatever that class was, right? Like you can just kind of imagine King in that class and uh, taking notes on these stories while he's you know in class, which uh, is actually its own kind of engagement with the course material, I should I should say. But I would like to know more about that uh, to see where um, he's making you know some of these connections, bringing things in from uh, different things they were reading that semester and 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 so on, which I, I know will be a little bit of uh, uh, what Corey Olson calls crit fic, but I think it would be enjoyable to do here. But you know, to get more to your 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 point of of, of what is King doing and what way is he appropriating this material? Let me just take kind of as an entry in. To that, and, and I'll pause at the end of end of this uh, to, to think about the way in which Roland is the the knight errant, right? Is the the you know the last of these knights on a kind of you know mission? Uh, certainly, we have the errant part in the sense that well, he's wandering, right? He's not at home and he's wandering, so like that's that box is ticked uh, pretty easily. But in what way is he a knight, right? In what way is he a, a, a paladin? Like, do we actually see him being? lawful good or or even any kind of good. I mean, I don't know. Roland might be more neutral good than lawful good for sure. But or, you know, the question is, I guess, though, is he is he good at all? Well, you know, certainly he regrets having had to murder everyone in tall. Like that wasn't something he enjoyed doing. That's something we see, I guess. We see that he's capable of having love for someone, and that's not nothing in this world. In fact, in this world, that seems to be a pretty big deal. And he also seems to really like and care for Jake. He seems to be, you know, wanting to make sure Jake is okay. But I don't know, all of that's still also a little gray, right? He does still murder everybody. Uh, he was, his interest in Alice or, or Allie in, in the first chapter was, uh, you know, perhaps romantic, perhaps genuinely loving, but he was not about to settle down with her, right? So there was a sense in which he also was using her for his own comfort, uh, even if she didn't mind that and was consenting to it. And it's also pretty clear here that Roland realizes there's some connection between Jake and the man in black, and he's bringing Jake along, not just because he didn't want to leave him to dehydrate and or starve at the way station he's bringing jake along because he thinks jake might be useful so it's a pretty at least gray if not just genuinely dark idea of a knight errant i think that leads us pretty well into our ethics and morality conversation <laughs> because that's really the the what this chapter is about in some way that and professionalism i guess and i brought up in our recap episodes how the gunslinger was concerned about what's happening to his ability to make sound moral choices. And, you know, even in, in the conversation that Roland has with, with his father, his father tells Roland that uh, it's not your place to be moral. Morals may always be beyond you. And that's part of what is going to make Roland a great hero. And then the gunslinger or Roland thinks, uh, that everything he's done is justifiable because he's in pursuit of something like the Holy Grail. In this case, it's the Dark Tower. And he also tells us that the man in black isn't necessarily bad. It just depends on where you're standing. That leads me to believe that the man in black is pursuing his own ends, perhaps, then. And, and from his perspective, he's able to justify his own moral ills in light of what he hopes to achieve. 
So before we dig too deep into the ethics of the world that's moved on and then the characters that inhabit it, let's clarify maybe what we know about the gunslinger and the man in black, about what they're trying to achieve, what ends they're after. Because it's the ends here in this world that really determine whether or not the the actions are justified. So, Glenn, I think the gunslinger's goals are maybe a little more obvious, so I want to start there. Do the easy work first. <laughs> what, what, what do you think the gunslinger is trying to accomplish? Right. I mean, the only thing that we really know explicitly is that he's trying to catch up with the man in black because he needs the man in black to take him to a tower or at least tell him how to get there. That's all we know explicitly at this point. We don't know what Roland intends to do with that tower or hopes that he'll find. We don't have anything like that. But I think that we can read between the lines and and, and see the emotional motivation for Roland here is something to do with either bringing back this world that has moved on, uh, you know, healing the realm, right? That's the real Arthurian way to think of it, the Arthuriana way to think of it, healing the realm, or possibly it's about vengeance. And I don't know, I, I, you know, if I had to bet at this point, I might actually bet on vengeance. I think vengeance has to be, it has to be revenge. And, and I don't know quite what the gunslinger hopes to find at the Dark Tower at this point, though that's his ultimate and getting to the Dark Tower and at all costs is really what he's after. And I know there's an epilogue at the end of book seven, the Dark Tower, uh, that has is dissatisfying for a lot of readers. But I think even this early on in the story, we can see that King is telling a story or a series of adventures about this person and keeping the objective backgrounded and changing the scope of conflict uh, to have the gunslinger go on this journey, but really tell the story about the journey instead of what the gunslinger is going to achieve. And that goes throughout the whole text. And I, I was actually shocked reading this story again, knowing the whole series, not having read it for over a decade, uh, to see that the man in black is, as you and I talked about before, kind of this background objective that motivates the gunslinger so we can get stuff about the world, so we can get stuff about the gunslinger's conscience, so we can get stuff about the way other characters he interacts with change him to get, in a sense, um, a person versus nature story and a person versus self story. And that's really what these books end up being about. And and that's a real classic move in medieval Arthurian romance, right? Is the, the Grail quest? It's the quest. It's not the Grail. You're never going to get the Grail. There are three uh, knights of the Round Table, three Arthurian heroes in in the whole canon who ever actually even glimpse the Grail, and none of them actually get it because well, you you, you can't, right? That's that's not actually something that's going to be possible in those stories. But it's the quest for the Grail that is really the point of the story. It's what allows these poets to uh, tell us you know fun adventures about fighting monsters, uh, also stories about resisting temptation, which of course we have seen Roland definitely does not do. Fight some monsters, yes. Resist temptation, absolutely not, right? So he's he's no Percival, he's no Galahad. Or 
for Gawain here, for sure. <laughs> He's not measuring up, at least not uh, in, in that sense. But the grail itself is a kind of ever-shifting goal. It moves, right? Anytime the hero gets close, it has to move so that the quest continues. And that's literally what the man in black is doing, right? He's, he's the objective and he's walking. Uh, and it is interesting, right? At this point, the king is laying the groundwork for, well, he's slowing down on purpose so that he can actually be caught up with. And that's a real cool move. And, you know, it will be fun to, I actually have no recollection of where any of this is going, even though I have read the first four books in this series. It's been two decades for me, not one. So my <laughs> my memory of this is really just all gone. But I will be excited to revisit this question if and, and, and when Roland and the Men in Black actually do catch up with each other to kind of uh, read that scene or you know, chapter or book as if it's the Arthurian hero actually finding, actually touching, you know, the, the Holy Grail. While we're on the topic of the man in black, what do you think he's trying to accomplish? Like, he knows Roland is following him. He's laying traps for him. But is all he's doing is trying to destroy Roland? Or does he have a bigger goal in mind? Well, I think it's pretty clear that he's got a bigger goal in mind. Like, he seems to be going somewhere as well, though he is aware of Roland and, uh, you know, he's going to have to take care of Roland, right? It seems like, well, if I'm going to have to deal with Roland, I'd rather deal with him on my terms. That to me seems to be what's what's going on here. I think we can say a few things from what we've been able to glean from the first two chapters of this story. One important piece of information is that the man in black is related to the good man in the flashback here, this character, Martin. And Martin is presented in the conversation in the, the kitchen, the conversation between the guard and Hacks, the, the cook who is hanged, as being a kind of political rival or geopolitical rival to the gunslingers that we're dealing that we're in some kind of post-apocalyptic world in which there's a, a gunslinger civilization and then there's something else. There's the good man. And they are clearly neighbors. They each seem to have you know several constituent communities. And it's really a question of political philosophy or political rule or you know power structures of which one you would rather live in. And of course, we as readers who are rooting for our protagonist, even as we recognize that maybe we might not actually like him very much, we implicitly think that we're on the side of the gunslingers in that flashback, that the good man is actually the bad man. He's the baddie of that story. But the line there that the, the guard gives is to describe the gunslingers as the rule of the gun, right? People who are themselves using violence in order to rule people. And the good man is presented as the opposite of that and is being presented as uh, someone who is actually a kind of uh, religious figure who's trying to create a world of peace, right? It's the, the lamb lying down with the lion is the good man, is Martin's goal. And so if the man in black is associated with that, you know what what does that what does that mean what is he after he's he's questing for something that's going to bring lasting peace in some way and why does roland not want him to attain that right i mean it's it it is really brilliant the way that king is playing with or getting us to question who's good and who's evil in this story it is really brilliant 
you brought up a number of things, you know, not just the association between uh, Martin, the good man, and the man in black. The man in black also goes around in the guise of a priest. He started that religious revival in Tall, or at least made use of it to set a trap for Roland. But we also see that these characters uh, are using violent means to achieve their ends, you know, not just the moment in tall, not just killing Jake, but also the poisoning of a whole town basically in order to do what inhabit it, uh, uh, only save his people. We've seen, you know, God do this in the old Testament. Um, and so King himself is actually doing something really interesting by having these types of people, use primarily Old Testament teachings. The lion and the lamb image comes from uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, who was a prophet. That That's a book about the image of the, the, the end times of where there's no conflict anymore between the, the strong and the weak. There's no even need to have a food chain because everything will be at peace. I mean, I think we'll still use our heels to strike at snakes, but I think even that's off the table in those verses as well. And, and so what do you think King is doing by including these, what we call like Christian things, but really Judeo-Christian images, uh, and by associating them with uh, the man in black? What, like you, you touched on it a little bit, but I, I want you to go a little deeper here. Right, these verses in Isaiah, this is also where we get the notion of of beating swords into plowshares, right? That you're going to be able to put your weapons away and use the the metal uh, of those weapons to grow food, right? To be not a source of death or an instrument of death, but to be an instrument of life in uh, in agricultural pursuits. Uh, and all of that is a, a, yeah, a kind of prophecy, right? Of, of what the world is going to be like once uh, the, the, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of God is at hand. And so in some sense, that's apocalyptic. This story is clearly apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic in some way. And so there's, I think, some real deep irony to drawing on Isaiah for, you know, for that imagery, right? That something has happened, the end of the world has come, and it's clearly not really like that, right? It is clear that the lamb and the lion are not actually lying down together, even if we might accept that Martin's society actually are the real good guys and that uh, the the gunslingers are actually the real bad guys. Maybe we could accept that that's what's happening here. It just doesn't seem like Martin really could be all that good because what he's up to here is murdering children, right? He's going to poison kids. That's what he's, he's saying. We have to poison these kids in order to establish lasting peace on earth. This is definitely a place where I do not think that the ends can justify those those means for sure. Well, we'll certainly talk about sacrificing children to achieve ends in this, in this episode. <laughs> that's still to come. Uh, but I also think that's some of the tension in this story. It's some of King's real genius uh, in, in handling these images and creating the tension is knowing all these references about what the promised land, what the end of time will look like when, when God returns, by having his villains, by our, from our perspective, uh, appropriate these images and sell them to others, but then also associating these villains with the world moving on directly. 
uh, implicitly maybe as well, but also saying, you know, it's been, it's been many years since the kingdom fell to the good man and then the world moved on. So we get this sense that there's some correlation between this person taking power and this kind of hellscape, the surreal world that Roland is now forced to inhabit. And I think King is just geniusly manipulating these images to give us a real sense of tension for uh, a culture who still, even in the 1970s was pretty baked uh, in these uh, images and stories less so now, but definitely more so back then. Yeah. I guess I have been inferring that the sort of hellscapeness of this world is, uh, is simply geographic. It's because we're in the desert here that, you know, weird Western Hogwarts where the flashback scene is taking place, you know, in, in at least a decade previously, I think probably two decades you know, prior to the present of this story, that that was also not a great place. It just happened to be not in a desert. And so it seemed better. There was some kind of actual civilization there. I, I don't have the sense that the desertification here is as a result of uh, the good man having defeated the gunslingers, though, though maybe I've, I've misunderstood. You know, I, I'm not sure I could point to any actual bit of text that supports my inference there. It's just the, the, this feeling that I had as I was reading, I didn't see a correlation there or, or a causal relationship there. No, I think you're right about the desert in particular. Uh, the, the, this whole world, though, is pretty rough. Everything's gone mad and haywire in different <laughs> ways. Uh, so I guess I'm reading backwards a little bit, which might be a little unfair. But yeah, Roland is geographically in a desert. That's by choice because he's following the man in black. He's not, the desert doesn't exist because civilization collapsed, right? So that's not, yeah, that's not correlated. Uh, I guess I just recall later scenes in the in the series where it's clear that it's not just geography that's gone a little wonky and surreal <laughs> and haywire. But let's keep going here. Let's uh let's turn back to Roland. You know, in light of Roland's crazy comments about the ethics of a quest, about being in pursuit of some higher thing or maybe some something beyond you, whether it's the Holy Grail or the Dark Tower itself, you know, uh, about how anything is justifiable. I, I mentioned Soren Kierkegaard's concept of the teleological suspension of the ethical, and, and here I'll dig into this a little bit. This concept arises in Kierkegaard's 1843 work called Fear and Trembling. I'm not going to go too much deeper into Kierkegaard here than that simple introduction. But I will say that Kierkegaard wrote under different pseudonyms in order to represent different personas or perspectives. Um, and so Fear and Trembling, we say, is written by Kierkegaard. It's really written by a character of Kierkegaard's named Johannes de Silentio or John of the Silence, maybe just John Silence. Hey, we know that guy. We've come across him before. Um, but in any event, Fear and Trembling looks closely at the story of Abraham when he is asked by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac, who was promised to Abraham in his old age. He was told by God, Abraham was, that his son would be the way that God would establish a nation for his people. And then when Isaac reaches a certain age, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham does this because he's a man of faith. He goes willingly along with this plan. So here we have a kind of a quest story. Abraham is in pursuit of something like perfect faith. His gaze is not, strictly speaking, set on nation building. 
And so he's not too worried if his God is a capricious one because he's the true God. For another perspective on this story, if you don't want to read it, you know, in the Bible, Leonard Cohen has a pretty good track about this story as well. If you're into that sort of thing, though, Cohen's song is more about how this aspect of the story is really about uh, God showing Abraham that it's time to prohibit child sacrifice everywhere, that this just won't be a part of the kingdom of any established nation that God uh, creates. Anyway, Kierkegaard investigates the idea of the teleological suspension of the ethical, um, being very general here, uh, by showing us that in pursuit of something universal or something beyond us, the particular moment of ethical choice can be suspended so that the final end can be accomplished. So as it relates to Roland in the way station, I have to wonder if the gunslinger is good, if this is good, if, if the use of this concept is actually in pursuit of something good, and if he even has an ethical basis for this quest, do you think that he does? Do you think that this is a story about the pursuit of the good? And that so these, these things like rape and murder and sacrifice can be given into, or that there's just something very wonky about all of this that's taking place on the ethical level? It certainly doesn't sit well with me if if that's if that's true, <laughs> right? If 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 everything that Roland is up to here is ethical, or you know, if if we're flipping it around and seeing the good man, you know, Martin and his half brother, the man in black, as being good, people are not doing good things. There's nobody doing good things really, or there's at least maybe I should say there's nobody do, not doing bad things in this world, and the bad things are really bad things. They're you know Stephen King story bad things, and so. I certainly could not support a a, a moral or, or ethical system that permits for many of these types of actions, and certainly not one that's going to permit for the killing of children, which is something that appears in both uh, parts of the story here in the way station, the flashback and the story of the present, right, where we're being, uh, you know, where King is heavily foreshadowing that uh, Jake is going to be a sacrifice of some sort, or at least that that is going to be a, a, a threat, something that is threatened. And maybe he is setting it up for Roland to be in the position of Abraham there to uh, not actually carry through with it and and for good to uh, to come of that, for there to be some kind of intervention that prevents him from doing that, something like that. Um, you know, it seems like that is what's being set up here, but that's unclear. But certainly... I don't buy this as an actual moral or, or ethical system. Though I am interested in the idea that King is trying to engage with Kierkegaard here. Um, and just to give a little context for Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard was was Danish and he also is uh, uh, 19th century. And in fact, he dies right around the same time that Browning uh, publishes Child Roland. And so, I don't know, it's possible that King actually was reading Kierkegaard in some sort of 19th century literature class that he was <laughs> he was taking. So I go back again to me wanting to do some some grit fic on, on what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, this is just uh, language I really like. I, I like the concept of the teleological suspension of the ethical because it plays such a big role in any type of quest story that we don't even think about it. And, and sometimes the best way to even encounter this concept is in the context of a quest story where oftentimes our main characters, if they're uh, 
not perfect characters, you know, if they're not entirely noble, will be called upon to do something questionable in order to seek the outcome of the quest. And it's really the ethics of the quest that, that I'm thinking about here as like a larger, as a larger storytelling dynamic. And I think King is doing something really interesting with the ethics of the quest here. We know that Roland is troubled by what he's done so far in this journey in pursuit of the Dark Tower. But we don't really know anything about the Dark Tower. We assume it's a noble end or telos because it's what our hero is striving for. But that's not clear in this story. All we know about it is that it's mythical uh, you know, perhaps, and that King in, I don't know, some kind of the, the proximity style of meaning um, equates it to the Holy Grail, which is, as we talked about, that classic night quest where only the pure and pure of heart can succeed. But I don't think the tower is on the same level here. And so it's it, it's already diminished. The quest is already diminished um, in that sense, even though we get this sort of weird equation between the Holy Grail and the Dark Tower. Right. The The idea in the Arthurian literature is that it doesn't really even matter what you're questing for. Really, what's what's going on here is just that you need to go on a long horse ride or, or walk or boat ride and um, get put in situations where it'd be real easy to behave badly, but you have to behave goodly. That's, that's the point. If you do that for, you know, like a certain amount of time, a kind of, there's, you know, a kind of countdown clock going, a timer <laughs> going, then, uh, then you get to see the Holy Grail. That's how that works. That's clearly not what's happening here, right? The objective is an actual objective and you really, really are trying to get to it. That is what winning, that's what accomplishing the goal is going to look like here, right? Roland has no sense that uh, his comportment really matters in his ability to actually achieve his goal here. Uh, there's zero of that. Right. King isn't letting Roland off the hook the same way we let Luke Skywalker off the ho hook for like <laughs> destroying the Death Star and the thousands of people in there uh, because he's the good guy. He's on the hero's journey, which means whatever he's doing is right. And that the the to to destroy the Death Star, the ultimate goal, destroy the evil, I don't know, you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. That's a mixed metaphor mixed with the literalism. <laughs> None of that worked. I'm sorry, but uh, it's what I got here today. And so, yeah, Luke suspends the particular ethical that I shouldn't kill thousands of people who are just going to work in order to achieve the end of destroying the ultimate evil. And so that, and that's, and even in Star Wars, you see there's a higher calling, the Jedi nobility, the ghosts, you know, the godlike figures. There's no gods here. There's no angels. There's no Jedi ghosts. There's a demon and a boy from another world. And so there's not even that higher, that sense of higher purpose that's calling Roland beyond himself. There's only Roland's obsession. And that's really what we're following here. And so we get the sense that Roland's attitude isn't really thinking along the lines of, of Kierkegaard's teleological suspending, suspension of the ethical. He's much more aligned with the more cynical version of that, where the ends justify the means, where you can suspend ethical or moral behavior to achieve an end. And ends in themselves, just by having an end, doesn't make anything good or even noble. It's just something you want to want to do. 
So yeah, this is all uh, kind of caught up here. Uh, Glenn, I wonder, you know, how you think Roland's formation as a child maybe plays into his sense of morality. I'm I'm sure that being beaten and called a, a, a maggot and uh, watching people be hanged probably has no negative consequences on the development of uh, of a person. Uh, yeah, I've, I've read fine. about this. I've done some reading on this, and it's not clear. It's inconclusive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all real bleak. I, I want to talk about that. I want to I want to circle back though, just real briefly, to thinking about Luke Skywalker because I actually think it's kind of profitable to compare Roland to Luke Skywalker, which I didn't I didn't anticipate really doing. But thinking about how Star Wars sets up its quest story for Luke, right? What's what's his quest? How does it change? How does he go from, uh, you know, wanting to go to Hitachi Station to get power converters and waste time with his friends to blowing up the Death Stars? You know, first, he is going on a mission with Obi-Wan, right? To help rescue somebody. Eh, somebody thinks is beautiful. He's got some ulterior motives there, but they're going to rescue somebody, right? So that's a, that's a goal that is about helping a person. And then of course, along the way, what they discover is that the baddies have the ability to blow up entire planets, to kill billions of people by, you know, pushing one button. And, so that weapon needs to be destroyed. And there's a, a utilitarianism there to the morality then of blowing up the Death Star of saying, you know, accepting that there are some janitors and other types of civilian contractors on the on the Death Star, but most <laughs> of them are soldiers. And at any rate, they're all there operating or supporting the operation of a weapon that has already killed billions of people on Alderaan, and we need to prevent that from happening again, right? So that that's a, a, a goal there that fits into a moral system that a lot of people, a lot of viewers to Star Wars would subscribe to, a sort of utilitarianism there. But Roland isn't doing anything like that, at least not that we have been told. To be fair-ish to Roland, he's real laconic. He doesn't explain to Jake what his motives are or his actual ends, just trying to get to a tower. You know, like that's it. Like, like what, what kind of tower? We, we don't even actually know it's a dark tower at this point. He hasn't <laughs> called it that. We just no adjectives. We don't know anything. But it's clear he's not going to rescue somebody, right? There's no sense here that, um, well, the man in black uh, and uh, the good man, well, they have poisoned a lot of children. And I might actually be called upon to sacrifice Jake here in order to get them. But I'm doing that so that they will stop poisoning children. And so that's a, you know, that that might work out in a utilitarianism type of ethic. We're not getting anything like that. So I think, yeah, comparing, comparing this to Luke Skywalker, I think gives us actually some insight into how King is, is going about doing this. Yeah, and I think King is playing with our broader kind of cultural acceptance that anybody on a quest is doing something good. I mean, this is how we get Mark Zuckerberg's and Jeff Bezos's and Elon Musk's, <laughs> you know, is just this, if you can frame the story as a quest where they're the protagonist, we forgive everything. And it's, uh, I, I, I'm so concerned about our storytelling situation in this culture, but uh I don't know. We get to yak about it once in a while on the show, which I always really enjoy. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's more we can say about this. And Glenn, you might even have more you wanted to say. But uh, let's let's move on and talk about something a little lighter here. We can always circle back if we want to. Let's talk about professionalism. 
this is a big part of this story in a weird way. I pointed out in our recap all these moments where professionalism is brought up, and I'm not exactly sure why this is such a strong theme of this section. Even Hacks, the, the traitorous cook, is described as loving children in a businesslike way. And the same parallel is drawn with Jake's nanny. Jake hates all professional people in the world around him. Um, you know, the gunslinger, though, we think of as a professional maybe in some way. Glenn, you did an awesome job of pointing out how, how the gunslinger is gleaning all of this from Jake's mind. And I tried to point out how Jake wasn't quite old enough to reflect upon these unconscious biases uh, or even uh, unreflected convictions that he has. But Maybe I should just ask you first, before we continue here, why you think it is that Jake hates professional people before we kind of get into bigger questions. Right. Well, you did reserve the right to circle back, Brandon. So I'm going to I'm going to do that here because I think <laughs> this lines up with what you you actually asked me before I decided I, I just wasn't done talking about Luke Skywalker yet. I don't actually get to like use my TV very much <laughs> anymore. So <laughs> I don't get to watch Star Wars. So this is the only only chance I get to to live in that world a little bit. But we, we had started that by by thinking about the way in which the upbringing of Roland maybe has 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 uh, re- been reflected in his comportment as an adult. But I think that that's something that's going on here with Jake too, right? That we are seeing a parallel between Roland's childhood in what is clearly an abusive situation, right? Court is, although we know that Roland has a lot of love and respect for court and actually ends up seeing court as a kind of actually a subordinate at some point where we, where there's definitely some class structure there in, uh, in his world court, as we're seeing him here, I mean, really does give Snape a run for his money. He's abusive. Roland's father is also a, a complete jerk. Um, we know that Roland's mother is having an affair. And so there's a real sense in looking at that world, the world that Roland is growing up in, that there's not, there aren't a lot of adults in that world who are loving children. Uh, it's interesting that Hacks is presented as being the one adult who is, and then he's also the one adult who's like, yeah, I guess I'll put some poison in the food to kill some kids, right? So that is a bleak, bleak world for kids there. But there's a real parallel with Jake's own experience, right? Jake's parents don't have time for him. His dad's too important and is busy, which is, I think, also what's happening with Roland. Uh, also, Jake's dad is too busy for Jake's mom. That seems to be true for Roland and Roland's mom, Roland's dad and Roland's mom as well, right? And because of that, Jake's mom is also having affairs. And so you can see where Jake would definitely have this animosity towards professional people because as far as he can tell, being professional means caring more about your job than about your family. And so Jake is, although certainly well cared for financially. He's getting a great education at an awesome private school and getting tutors and all of that stuff. He's alone and he doesn't even have friends. He's aware on some level already that people who want to befriend him, want to have other kids who want to have relationships with him are interested in him because of his station, his position, his family's wealth and so on. And so he's lonely and feeling unloved. And it's very clear that Roland has also grown up in that same way. And we can even think about this business that we learn at the end that Roland kills his own mother as being a kind of 
vengeance for maybe not really loving him enough. I mean, it's framed as uh, having to do with her relationship, her sexual relationship with the good man. But I think that's about feeling wronged by her and uh, not necessarily about some kind of political scenario in which, you know, she unlocked the gates to the community or something like that. So anyway, that's a real parallel between uh, this hating of professional people that we get with Jake and also the upbringing of, of Roland and the way that that's reflected in his comportment as an adult. Yeah, I think what King is doing so well by telling us about Jake's childhood and then drawing those parallels to Roland's childhood is telling us the emotional story of Roland's childhood through Jake and then telling us the events of Roland's childhood through the flashback. And I think it's just a brilliant move. And then we can see also immediately, without need for much explanation, why Roland cares so much for Jake, because they're the same, right? And Roland then has this instinct to be different from the professionalism that surrounds Jake. Yet at the end of this story, Roland thinks about Jake as being professional, right? Because of the way he's handling the situation. So King is almost like redeeming this word that he's used that is a, an object of scorn for Jake and maybe Roland both, though Roland adapts this terrible responsibility and Jake is just being introduced to it. And I think it's a brilliant move. And I just wondered what you made of this kind of linguistic trick at the end of the story. Yeah, it's certainly very interesting. I, I, yeah, it's certainly very interesting to track the ways that King is both using the word professional and then also showing a type of professionalism at work in this story, and also just using professional as an ugly word here, which is certainly <laughs> for young Stephen King, right? Who's who wants to be an artist, wants to be a writer. He does not want to put on a suit and tie and go to work, right? That's the thing that he could easily do. He's got the the intellect and the talent to go you know, be a good banker or TV executive or whatever, you know, it might be, he could do that, but does not want to sell out, right? He wants to make art, right? And uh, that's definitely being <laughs> exemplified here, uh, you know, in, in the way that professional is being is being used. It's, it's a shame that it's actually just like about three years too early for yuppie to be to be used <laughs> <Right>. here. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think there's also a sense here, right, in which professional is being used as a word to mean uh, having shut down any kind of emotional being, any kind of emotional sense, right? That professional means you just decide not to have any emotions or feelings about anything and just do your job, uh, just to do your job. And maybe that pays really well. Maybe that lets you have more uh, meat in the castle than some of the other kids get or something like that, right? But it's really just about shutting down a part of yourself in order to only emphasize one one element of, of living in a community. I think that speaks to the, the danger uh, that the demon talks about of Jake's presence in Roland's life, that, that the man in black will have Roland's soul in his pocket as long as Jake is with him, because the gunslinger's a professional, but now he's having feelings for this kid that he might have to sacrifice. And Jake is doing what he has to do. He's pushing himself. He's not drinking too much water. He's carrying his load. He's acting like a young professional in this world. And maybe King doesn't redeem the word at the end of the story. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's terrible foreshadowing. I don't know. 
Well, certainly, though, at least one way this could go that is being hinted at here, right, is that Roland's going to get a chance to be court while Jake gets a chance to be Roland here, right? That Roland gets a chance to step into those shoes and perhaps do a better job of it. But it is also, yeah, by the demon being framed here as a type of weakness, that that the only way that Roland can succeed is to continue to shut down that part of himself, to shut down emotions, to shut down love and kindness and uh, charity and, I don't know, play even, right? To just be singularly focused on the quest, the chase, and 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 being an instrument of, of violence, right? To focus on gunslinging. And that anything else, like feelings for Jake, feelings for Allie, those are distractions. And they're not just distractions, they're an actual weakness. Well, I think since we've kind of come to the end of the story again, uh, through our discussion of professionalism and our veering back into the ethics of gunslinging and maybe the ethics of questing. Uh, we don't want to repeat ourselves, so we're going to cut out here. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. And uh, yeah, okay, here at the end of this episode, this is going to be it. It's going to be the true final reminder that we are voting right now to decide which classic work of weird fiction is going to be our next Patreon bonus series goal. We hope you'll come join us at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia so you can have your say, so you can vote and decide what it is that we're going to cover. And uh, please do that now because there really are only a few days left. So next time, we're going to be back with a pair of bonus episodes that were commissioned by one of our awesome Patreon supporters. These will be on the novella My Pathology by Lisa Tottle. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.